you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. It's Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com. Thechrisvossshow.com. Hey, come here another great podcast. I certainly appreciate you guys tuning in. Why do I have to do the Chris Voss Show thing, man? God, it's, it's so annoying. I hate that doing that thing, but people love it. And they run up to me at shows and go, the Chris Voss Show. And so I can never quit doing it. It's really annoying. But I guess I love it. Remember, sign up for the free YouTube for an unlimited time. You can go there and hit the bell notification button. You can see all the wonderful videos we have. There's like 4,500 videos or something like that up there. I've lost track. It's a, it's a gross amount. So go watch them all. In fact, you can watch all the book author podcasts in a playlist. If you just want to watch all like a 5 billion authors, you can just do the book author playlist and just listen. Also go see our uh, great the LinkedIn newsletter that's killing it over LinkedIn, 132,000 group also over there on LinkedIn. Go to all of our groups, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, wherever those cool kids are playing these days. Also go to goodreads.com for chess Chris Voss. Hit the bell notification button. Uh, there's no bell notification on Goodreads. Made you look, didn't I? Anyway, guys, uh, we have a new, <laughs> a new book has hit the marketplace. Wherever fine books are sold, the book is called White Lies. The Double Life of Walter F. White. Wait, is that the guy from Breaking Bad? Maybe not. The Double Life of Walter F. White and America's Darkest Secret with A.J. Bame is on the show with us today. The book just barely came out February 8th, 2022, for you watching this 10 years from now. He is the New York Times bestselling author of The Accidental President, Harry S. Truman, and The Four Months That Changed the World. The Arsenal of Democracy, FDR, Detroit, and an epic quest to arm an America at war. Go like hell, Ford, Ferrari, and their battle for speed and glory at Le Mans. And Dewey defeats Truman, the 1948 election and the battle for America's soul. Blame is a longtime regular contributor to the Wall Street Journal, and his articles have. And Blame, that cut off on the chat, his articles have. What was the rest of that? Appeared in the New York Times and the Washington Post. Ah, it cut that off in the chat. Only gave us the that, that part there. So there's the rest of it. Welcome to the show, AJ. How are you? Chris, it's a pleasure to be with you. <laughs> yeah, I, it was a team effort there on the bio. I think that's I think that's what we wanted. It's, we just had you come in for the final wrap. So welcome to the show. Congratulations on the new book. Give us your plugs so people can find you on the interwebs. I'm sorry? Uh, give us your plugs so that people can find you on the interwebs. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, well, ajbame.com, at ajbame at Twitter. We have all sorts of technological difficulties today. So my Facebook got hacked. So I'm oh. currently kicked off Facebook because somebody hacked me and sent out all my strange misinformation to the world. So find me on Twitter, please, at ajbame. There you go. There you go. My Instagram actually got hacked recently, too. And uh, I have to go send a letter to Instagram to try and get it back because they, they think it was a fake account. I've owned it since since uh, the beginning of Instagram. So I think something's going on with their AI. So what motivated you want to write this book? 
Well, a bunch of things. Walter White, nobody has really written a mainstream biography of this person who I think is an extraordinarily important person. It stuns me. It, it, I find it actually amazing that if you say the words Walter White today, people just only think of Breaking Bad. They don't know who this person is. It's a very tricky thing to launch into the marketplace, mm -hmm. a biography of someone who nobody's ever heard of. Mm -hmm. But I thought to myself, this guy's story is so incredible and so mm -hmm. hard to believe is true and so important in terms of our American history that uh, it was going to get people's attention. And it's only been out for a week and it's, it's, yeah. Maybe people get it confused with the guy who threw the pizza on the roof then. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> there you go. So give us an overall arcing uh, view of the book. What is it about? What does it entail? Okay, well, this is what it's about. It's about a guy named Walter White who gets plucked from obscurity and brought to New York in, in 1918. And basically, he describes himself as the enigma of a black person inside a white body, right? So he was born into a black family, went to a black school, went to a black university, black church, raised in Atlanta by a black family. Both of his parents had been born into enslaved families. So his parents were really the last of the last generation who could speak of the slave era from, but Walter had been born with white skin, blonde hair, blue eyes, mm -hmm. and he looked as white as I do right now. And so he lived, he decided to live as a, a double life. And that's why the book is called The Double Life of Walter F. White. Hmm. Uh, the first half of his life the, of the book is spent talking about these investigations that he conducted. So he, every time starting in 1918, all the way to 1931, really bizarrely, violent period in our American history, every time there was an episode of racial violence, the same kind of things that we were, that we hear about on the news today, times a thousand, yeah. uh, he would go undercover and leave Harlem where he lived as a black man. And he would go undercover as a white man and investigate these crimes and bring light to these, these criminal activities, ritualistic murders that were happening in our country that people were not being told about. Second oh, wow. half, Book is really about politics. He becomes a national political force. Mm -hmm. And and how does he do this? And what, he, what are the vehicles he uses to do this with? Well, he does it with the skin color. So he basically is a, a zealot type character because mm -hmm. he lives this. Day, he's a black man with white skin, and mm -hmm. thusly he can blend into any environment. And yeah. as a crusader for justice and civil rights, there's an element of bizarre element of sort of superheroedness. And this is something that one of the reviewers actually mentioned today, I think, that he sort of weaponized his skin color to be an agent of, uh, to be a crime fighter, to be mm -hmm. an agent of change in our mm -hmm. country. So he, he's, he works with the Harlem Renaissance, the NAACP, and he's also a newspaper man? All of the above. Okay. So, so those throughout the, the 1920s, that, yeah, go ahead. So those are the vehicles he's using to, to yes. try and do the social justice or the justice for this sort of thing and, and put it out? Absolutely. Yeah. So when he starts in 1918, nobody had heard of the NAACP. His undercover investigations caused these shocking headlines. You can imagine these long stories he would write in the magazines like uh, The Crisis, which was the NAACP magazine, but also people mm -hmm. have heard of The Nation, The New Republic. Mm -hmm. And he would write these big exposés about the fact that these massive ritualistic murders were happening in our country in front of crowds as large as appeared at some major league baseball games, and no mm -hmm. one would ever be arrested. Now, a lot of these were lynchings, the lynchings that were going on that I know there's the big museum now they have that, that covers just the just horrific amount of lynch, lynchings that were going on in the South. And so he would go down and 
And because he was white, he could figure out, find out maybe who, who was at the core of these crimes. That's exactly right. So the first time he does this, it's 1918 and there's a a lynching that occurs in Tennessee Mm -hmm. and he goes to this tiny, tiny little town and introduces himself in the, in the local store as a traveling salesman. He works for, he makes this up, this identity. He works for the Exilento medicine company and uh, he's, he's selling a, brand of hair straightener and he's all out of product. So he's got time to sit in this market and talk to these people mm-hmm. and he gets them to admit everything instantly. It's not very hard to do the sleuthing that he begins doing. That's the first case. And he goes on wow. to do 44 of these. <clears throat> and so does he call him out? Is, is this uh, does it lead to arrests and prosecution or? Well, that's a, a that's a great question. And that's mm-hmm. very much part of the story. So, mm. Walter would write these big reports. He would barge into the offices of governors in Arkansas and Georgia, and he would deliver these hand memorandums saying, these are the killers. This is who did it. Everybody in these communities knows who did it. Nobody is arrested. What are you going to do? And he would go in and give these reports to the governor of Georgia, the governor of Arkansas, and then release them to the press. Oh, wow. And watch the firestorm explode. Oh, wow. And yet still, in all of these cases, no arrests were ever made, even though everybody, it was clear that everybody knew who the identities of the killers were, uh, which is what leads to the second half of the book, because he realizes that this sort of undercover work is getting him nowhere, even though he's publishing, he's becoming famous doing this. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's when he decides to go into politics. Mm -hmm. And so what happens then when he gets into politics? Well, it's the 1930s. FDR is in office. And one of the things that he he tries to do is he becomes a major part of the effort to create a federal anti-lynching law, which is something that is still happening today. We're still many people in Congress are still trying to make this happen and it doesn't. And the idea is if there's a lynching or a murder in a small community and or a big community and no one is arrested and the local law enforcement is not enforcing the law, then the federal government has the right to come into that state and charge crimes federally. So that's what he started. That's how he got into politics. That was the beginning. And ultimately, he becomes the sort of force of nature who is the main force of the historic shift of black American voting power from the Republican Party, the party of Lincoln, to the Democrats, where it remains today. Yeah, quite quite interesting, man. Uh, and this is during the whole height of the Jim Crow era, too. Yeah, yep. Yeah. And that's sort of the trajectory of his life. He's born into Atlanta when everything is slightly, at least in Atlanta, pretty peachy. Everybody mm-hmm. gets along. Mm-hmm. Um, and things go quickly haywire when he's a kid. And that's when he decides that he's he wants to do what he can to, to stop it, the trajectory of what's going on in our country. Well, this must be quite the story because – being able to play that dual role, I mean, that gives you access to so much stuff. You can you can see both sides of the of the coin, if you will. Well, as a writer, Chris, thank you for saying that. Like that's what appealed to me, because like the same time that this guy is conducting these investigations in the South and rural, you know, South posing as a white man, he's also be- becoming a famous writer and novelist in Harlem, living as a black man. So his story illuminates both of those worlds at the same time, which makes him a particularly unique character. Mm -hmm. 
This is pretty. This is pretty interesting. One of the gentlemen we've had on the show a couple times who works at some universities. I forget which ones, but he's he's black albino. I think I think he has albinism, and so he he looks like half black or half white. And and growing up, it's bad enough growing up black where people call you things and, and names. He was getting shit from both sides because he looks, he's, he has albinism. So it was kind of interesting to see his perspective on how he grew up and what he dealt with. But it sounds like this uh, gentleman was uh, very, very, very white. Very white. white. Yeah. Yeah. He, he had blonde hair, blue eyes and, and white skin. Wow. Jeez, but wow. something you just said is really interesting because I want to paint a picture for your listeners. Check this out. Like, just imagine this. So mm-hmm. in, um, in Atlanta, where he's grown up, after basically things go south in around 1906 and seven, So he's a kid, and there are these streetcars. And every time you get on a streetcar, if you're black, you sit all the way in the back, and every seat in the back you can, working your way toward the front. Mm-hmm. And if you're white, you sit in the front, and every front seat you can, working your way toward the back. Mm-hmm. But every time Walter would get on one of these streetcars with his family, people would go crazy. Keep because it back. was like they everybody knew him. So if he sat at the front, he would his parents would get yelled at. If he sat at the back, his parents would get yelled at. Wow. That's sort of an example of how bizarre it was. That is crazy, man. What it's <laughs> the history of our country is just so insane. The more you learn about it and everything else. What are some other things or stories do you want to tease out that you think readers are really going to appreciate? For me, when I sat down to the LA Times quoted me in this humiliating way this weekend. <laughs> They just humiliated me. Like my friends are laughing at me. My wife is like, what the bleep? Because the, the Times writer quoted me and like, I didn't expect it. I mean, the, the LA Times, I didn't mm-hmm. expect him to quote, but I knew he, I, I guess in my heart, I knew he would, but he, he quoted me saying that I cried every day that I wrote this book for, for over three years. But it's sort of like not untrue because I think that what I try to do as a writer what I've always tried to do. And sometimes people come to my books from an academic point of view and they don't really understand where I'm coming from. But Mm -hmm. I feel like the goal is if people reading books, not to just understand information that's being given to them, but to try to make them feel. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's what I ultimately tried to do Mm -hmm. with this book, because Walter's story, every part of it, every page, I felt like I was either furiously angry were desperately sad. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of the trajectory of his life. And that's why he died pretty young. He did not wow. live. He died youngish. He started having heart attacks because he literally worked himself to death. Wow. The stress um, of it all. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. Well, the, I, a lot of the reviews that you have on the Amazon talk about your, how great you are at pouring into the story and, and making it interesting. And the emotion is the big thing. I mean, when you write with emotion, usually that comes through in the book and delivers out the other side. So how come more people didn't hear about this or why isn't he celebrated? Chris, that's a great question. So that's the, the answer to that question is built into the story. Mm. And there's really two reasons. So the whole time, Walter, like you can imagine a guy, it's, it's bizarre, but I'm telling people to read this, the book because it's true. But if you can imagine that the face of black power through the 1930s and 40s had skin that looked like mine, you would understand that when he died, and he died in 1955, the same year as the Montgomery bus boycott. So Martin hmm. Luther King Jr. comes into prominence. And you can imagine that in the new age of television, that the, the new generation of 
black civil rights leaders were not really keen on having somebody who might look like me as their yeah. as their leader. But there's more. Let me try to squeeze this down into a small space. But at the time, it's hard to imagine, but this is true. In the 1920s and 1930s, we had members of our Congress and the Senate and congressmen defend the act of lynching on the floor of Congress. And this is true because it's, it's in the congressional record. It's, I'm not making this up. It's in the congressional record. I believe it. Quotations are in the book. I set those scenes. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the what they w- would say is that that then this is like to say this in a public forum, people were going to go crazy. But this was the truth. This is what was happening, that they were defending the act of lynching because they said that black people were out for white women. Right. That was their defense. Wow. Throughout Walter's life, he was married to a black woman and had black children, but he was secretly having an affair with at the end of his life, toward the end of his life, he married this woman. And left his wife. His kids never spoke to him again. And all his critics said, "See, we were we were right all along. We were no. right all along." And it destroyed his reputation very quickly. And, oh, really? Yeah. And so when he died, oh. his legacy was lost to history. It never made the history books, and he just disappeared. Wow, what a tragic story, man. Yeah, that is heartbreaking. Wow. And it, it sounds like he was a real pers- precursor, maybe, who laid a foundation for those uh, civil rights leaders to come, like uh, Martin Luther King, maybe? Well, of course he did. During the 1930s, there was sort of like when the, all of this was brewing, you have to imagine that when he started at the NAACP in 1918, nobody had heard of it. Mm-hmm. Very few people had even heard of it. Mm-hmm. By the time he came, became chief, chief executive, uh, he was chief executive of the NAACP. He takes over essentially in 1930. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the biggest, most powerful civil rights organization, in the- and you have to ask yourself, like, if if he, he if he was that, why why haven't people heard of him? Now, I don't think I've answered your, your question, but I kind of I forgot what it was. I'm sorry. Could you repeat it? Uh, I think it was why why more people heard of him and did he lay a foundation for Martin Luther King? Yes, he did. Of course he did. Yeah. Yeah. But again, by the time television arrived, it was a new era. Yeah. Yeah. The, this is pretty interesting. Does, do, do, does he go through some, there's some stories in the books where he almost gets caught or busted when he's in the South and people start figuring out who he is after a while and, and start catching him, trying to catch them? Uh, yes. And no. so every time he conducts one of these investigations undercover, he publishes his findings. The, the bigger stink he makes, the more effective this inv- investigation is going to become. So each time mm-hmm. he does it, he's becoming more and more famous throughout the 1920s. And thus, wow. every time he goes undercover again... It's more likely that he's going to get caught. And if he's investigating ritualistic murders, he obviously understands what what he could be in for if his identity is found. And uh, there is one instance that he recalls where he's, I believe he's, he, he's in Arkansas, I think, or no, mm-hmm. it was in Georgia. It was in Georgia where he's, he's going down the street and he's pretending to be a white man. And somebody comes up to him and he says, you got to get out of town. They know who you are and they're coming after you. And so he has to sprint to the train station. And he gets to the booth to buy a ticket and the train station, there's only two trains out of town each day and he's hoping he can get one. He's not sure. And the ticket salesman says, where are you going? The excitement's about to start. There's, we, there's this guy who's pretending to be black. I mean, t- pretending to be white. who's black in our town right now. And we're going to find him and go get him. The ticket salesman says this to him. Holy crap. And um, the barbarity of the crimes he was investigating, he had to know. Yeah. These, these, these guys aren't, these guys aren't nice guys you're playing with. 
No. Yeah. Yeah, that would be like, yeah, that's, yeah, you just, it's like going in the basement of a serial killer. And what was that movie? <laughs> What's that movie? Uh, Silence of the Lambs. Uh, Silence of the Lambs, yeah. You're like going right inside the house to walk around. You're like, you know what they're capable of. That is crazy, man. Um, so interesting times with this gentleman. What sort of research access did you guys, did you have access to? Did you keep a journal? Was there, I imagine since you work with the NAACP, there was some history or some notes and records. Yeah, there was, well, it, it's an interesting that you asked that question because so what, this guy, Walter White appeared, Walter Francis White, not to be mistaken with Breaking Bad. He appears as like a minor character in the last three books that I've written. So I've been building this book for 15 years. And there was one point where his papers are at Yale University and I went there to look at them. Mm-hmm. And I spent a week there just to find out if there was enough to do this book. And what I found there kind of blew my mind because I found just as an example, uh, his handwritten notes from his investigations. He's down, you know, wow. conducting these undercover and you know, I have his handwritten notes. Like I'm interviewing so-and-so he, he's wearing spectacles. His, he has big jowls. He is in writing down what he's saying. Things like that. And I was in uh, New York researching in the New York Public Library in the various branches. They have a ton of material in there. And right when I was there, that's when COVID hit. That was the week. I remember being at a bar at Grand Central Station, drinking a beer with a friend of mine. And that's when the NBA announced, like, we're canceling our season. And I was like, oh, no. How am I going to travel around the country finding these records? But the NAACP papers are all digitized and they're Mm. all public. So a lot of that work was done right here in my house. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's it's so got to be so hard to get records. So he would a lot of the newspapers would write about his reports, and they still still couldn't put enough pressure on the uh, governors or uh, I guess attorney generals to look into him in the South. Huh? That's correct. And then it, really, there's this defining moment that's sort of a climactic moment in the book where you know by the end of the book, he, Walter F. White is this political force. And uh, he's a frequent guest in the White House. Mm. So he sits down with Harry Truman and he's like, look, this is what's going on. And there's another wave of post-war violence. And this was particular because after World War II, there were a number of instances where black men who, who had served the country in war, wore the uniform in, con- in combat, won medals pinned to their uniforms, came back to be have really bad things, really bad things happened to them in their communities in this country, and nobody mm-hmm. was charged with any crime. So Walter goes into the White House, and he demands of Truman that something be done. And there's this uh, dramatic moment where Harry Truman, at that time president of the United States, and from Missouri, a border state, so from a segregated state, from a family that had sided with the South in the Civil War, Truman is the one who says, we have to do something. Mm-hmm. And that's when the whole sort of story changes where the white house gets behind the civil rights movement at that moment. Oh, and, wow. Yeah. And kind of starts laying a foundation for that to take place. Huh? But that, that was a great trip. I mean, the, the, the tragedies are endless, especially if you've seen that lynching museum, I think it's in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, the, it's just, it's just extraordinary. And, and a lot of stuff didn't get documented and took place. And so they just, they just kind of even, the amount that they were able to document was just uh, horrific. And, and I remember I, there was some article I saw recently 
I think it was in the Washington Post where the someone who'd been beaten up and saved by a preacher 50 years ago, 53 years ago, he was holding signs that they were talking about that, where they come back from the war and they hear they served America, put their lives on the line, and, and yet they still couldn't get you know full freedom back here in, in, in uh, a country they fought freedom for. Just an ugly irony. So yeah, it's it's really interesting. But I'm glad you brought this to light and, and, and uh, brought it out so that people can celebrate what he's doing, especially, I, I think we're still in Black History Month, right? February? We still in February? <laughs> I don't know what month it is sometimes. Chris, I, I, I feel you. I'm right there yeah. with you. I am. But yes, I mean, the answer to your question is, is, is yes. And listen, in this book, like, I just want to say, and I hope like readers and, and people watching will might understand, like, it's like terrifying to put out a book like this. It's got mm-hmm. every hot button issue in it. Every mm-hmm. single one. Mm-hmm. Anything you can imagine that's a hot button issue is in this book and can be told through this guy's life. And people are going to respond. People are going to get angry. People are going to upset. They're going to give me bad reviews. Thus far, there's only been one bad review, and everybody else has been going nuts saying it's about time. Hmm. But, um, you know, it's not relaxing. (laughs) 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 Like this, you know? Well, you, yeah, I mean, you should be pretty good. Wow. People don't realize how we're really not that far removed. We're less than 100 years removed from this racism. And that's why it's still te- steeped so deeply in our society and everything else. And, of course, it's so interwoven. Uh, racism is in the, between institutions and our laws and patterns. I mean, you still see, what is it, the filibuster that's in the Senate is, is a racist sort of thing that they used to keep things from being, or laws from being passed again on the South. And it, it's so extraordinary. And it's, it's so important that we learn these things because a lot of this is lost in history or hasn't been highlighted or what we would call whitewashed in history. And so I think it's important to have more of these stories and, and more color painted into our history and a better understanding because until we until address the ugliness of our history, we can never change the future because we're just doomed to repeat it. That's that's absolutely true. And I'll say it's like it's courageous of you to have me on your show talking about this stuff because people get upset, have their own version of their own history. They want to have their own version of what they think America is or supposed to be or what the past mm-hmm. was. Yeah, we've had a lot of great authors on the show over the past two, two or three years. Everything we've gone from everything from the original lie of the Shining City on the Hill. And all the bullshit excuse that was used to made to slaughter the Indians and enslave everybody and just the horrific things we've been doing for 450 years and everything all the way up to, you know, the Alamo and, and, uh, all that good stuff. They get a lot of, they get a lot of crazy comments on the, on the, on their video. The comments are to this one. Well, you just threw Texas right in there. So you're probably going to, you're probably threw the chum right in the water for the Texans. Apparently. <laughs> There you go. Anything more you want to tease out on the book before we go out or any more people you want to piss off so we can get more comments on the video? Listen, I spent years working on this book. It's a fair book. It's fair. You know, there you go. I'm sorry if it pisses people off. Uh, I think it's important that people read it and I hope they do. And people, when people get pissed off, they should really look at like, why does this bother me? There is a thing of white fragility and white shame where people, and I've, and I've heard actually Republican voters say this. We were really ugly to minorities for 250, 450 years. And when they, when we, we become the minority, which I think is like what the next 10 to 20 years, they're going to treat us just as bad. It's like, well, maybe you should just start treating people better so that when you are the minority, they won't 
think they need to repay the favor. It might be a good time to start being a nice person. I don't know. Kind of. I think that's a good idea. That I can get behind. I hope everybody can get behind that. Yeah. So let's all just try and get along and kumbaya and be good human beings to each other. So it's been wonderful to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on, AJ. We certainly appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. There you go. Give us your plugs one more time, too, as we go out. Twitter at AJ Bame, Facebook disenabled. So <laughs> stay tuned. See if it gets, hopefully you get it back, bud. Go pick up the book, guys. White Lies, The Double Life of Walter F. White and America's Darkest Secret by AJ Blame. You can pick that up wherever fine books are sold. Is there any point in the book where he says, say my name? Probably no. not. No. All right, sorry, I had to put that joke in there at the end. Guys, go see the YouTube video at youtube.com for says Chris Moss. You're from Texas. You can leave some comments. They're free. Yeah, I might delete some if they're not really awful. Anyway, also go to goodreads.com for says Chris Moss. All of our groups on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, all those different places. Thanks for tuning in. Be good to each other. Stay safe, and we'll see you guys next time. Thank you.